Welcome to The History of the Christian Church, Season 1, with Lance Rolston. This episode of Communio Sanctorum is titled, And in the East, Part 1. The 5th century church father Jerome wrote, quote, Jesus was present in all places with Thomas in India, with Peter in Rome, and with Paul in Illyria, with Titus in Crete, with Andrew in Greece, and with each apostle, each in his own separate region." Unquote. So far, we've been following the track of most Western studies of history, both secular and religious, by concentrating on what took place in the West and Roman Empire. Even though we've delved briefly into the Eastern Roman Empire, as Lars Brownsworth aptly reminds us in his outstanding podcast, The Twelve Byzantine Emperors, even after the West fell in the 5th century, the Eastern Empire continued to think of and call itself Roman. It's later historians who refer to it as the Byzantine Empire. Recently, we've seen the focus of attention shift to the East with the Christological controversies of the 4th and 5th centuries. In this episode, we'll stay in the East and follow the track of the expansion of the faith as it moved even further eastward. This is an amazing chapter that's often neglected in traditional treatments of church history. It's well captured by Philip Jenkins in his book, The Lost History of Christianity. We'll start all the way back at the beginning with the Apostle Thomas. He's linked by pretty solid tradition to the spread of the Christianity into the East. In the quote that we started with from the early 5th century church father, Jerome, we learn that the Apostle Thomas carried the gospel all the way to India. In the early 4th century, Eusebius also attributed the expansion of the faith in India to Thomas. Though these traditions do face some dispute, there are still so-called Thomas Christians in the southern Indian state of Kerala to this day. They use an Aramaic form of worship that had to have been transported there very early. A tomb and shrine in honor of Thomas at Mylapur is built of bricks that had been used by a Roman trading company, but was abandoned after A.D. 50. There's abundant evidence of several Roman trading colonies along the coast of India, with hundreds of first-century coins and ample evidence of Jewish communities. Jews were known to be a significant part of Roman trade ventures. Their communities were prime stopping places for the efforts of Christian missionaries as they followed the Apostle Paul's model as we find described in the book of Acts. A song commemorating Thomas's role in bringing the faith to India wasn't committed to writing until 1601, but was said to have been passed on in the state of Kerala for 50 generations. Many trading vessels sailed to India in the first century when the secret of the monsoon winds was finally discovered, so it is quite possible that Thomas did indeed make the journey. Once the monsoons were finally figured out, over a hundred trade ships a year crossed from the Red Sea to India. Jesus told the disciples to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. While they were slow to catch on to the need to leave Jerusalem, persecution eventually convinced them to get moving. It's not hard to imagine Thomas considering a voyage to India as a literal way to fulfill the command of Christ. India would have seemed the end of the earth. Thomas's work in India began in the northwest region of the country. A 4th century work called the Acts of Thomas says that he led a ruler there named Gundufor to the faith. That story was rejected by most scholars and critics until an inscription was discovered in 1890 along with some coins which verify the 20-year reign in the 1st century of a king Gundufor. 
After planting the church in the north, Thomas traveled by ship to the Malabar coast in the south. He planted several churches, mainly along the Peria River. He preached to all classes of people and had about 17,000 converts from all of the Indian castes. Stone crosses were erected at the places where churches were founded, and they became centers for pilgrimages. Thomas was careful to appoint local leadership for the churches that he founded. He then traveled overland to the southeastern Indian coast and the area around Madras. Another local king and many of his subjects were converted. But the Brahmins, the highest of the Indian castes, were concerned that the gospel would undermine a cultural system that was to their advantage. And so they convinced the king of Mylapore to arrest and interrogate Thomas. He was sentenced to death and executed in A.D. 72. The church in that area then came under persecution, and many Christians fled for the refuge of Kerala. A hundred years later, according to both Eusebius and Jerome, a theologian from the great school at Alexandria named Pantaneus traveled to India to preach Christ to the Brahmins. Serving to confirm Thomas's work in India is the writing of Bardaisan. At the opening of the third century, he spoke of entire tribes following Jesus in North India who claimed to have been converted by Thomas. They had numerous books and relics to prove it. By A.D. 226, there were bishops of the church in the east in northwest India, Afghanistan, and Baluchistan, with thousands of laymen and clergy engaging in missionary activity. Such a well-established Christian community means the presence of the faith there for several decades at least. The first church historian, Eusebius of Caesarea, to whom we owe so much of our information about the early church, attributed to Thomas the spread of the gospel to the east. As those familiar with the history of the Roman Empire know, the Romans faced continuous grief in the east by one Persian group after another. Their contest with the Parthians and the Sassanids is a thing of legend. The buffer zone between the Romans and the Persians was called Osron, with its capital at the city of Edessa, located at the border of what is today northern Syria and eastern Turkey. According to Eusebius, Thomas received requests from Abgar, the king of Edessa, for healing, and responded by sending Thaddeus, one of the disciples mentioned in Luke chapter 10. Thus, the gospel took root there. There was a sizable Jewish community in Edessa from which the gospel made several converts. Word got back to Israel of the church community growing in the city, and when persecution broke out in the Roman Empire, many refugees made their way to the east to settle in a place that was now welcoming them. Edessa became a center of the Syrian-speaking church, which began sending missionaries eastward into Mesopotamia, north into Persia, Central Asia, and then even further eastward. The missionary Mari managed to plant a church in the Persian capital of Tesaphon, which became a center of missionary outreach in its own right. By the late 2nd century, Christianity had spread throughout Media, Persia, Parthia, and Bactria. The two dozen bishops that oversaw the region carried out their ministry more as itinerant missionaries than by staying in a single city and church. They were what we would refer to as tent makers, earning their way as merchants and craftsmen as they shared the faith wherever they went. By AD 280, the churches of Mesopotamia and Persia adopted the title of Catholic to acknowledge their unity with the Western Church during the last days of persecution by the Roman emperors. In 424, the Mesopotamian Church held a council at the city of Tesaphon, where they elected their first lead bishop, 
to have jurisdiction over the whole Church of the East, including India and Ceylon, which of course we know today as Sri Lanka. Tesafon was an important point on the east-west trade routes, which extended to India, China, Java, and eventually Japan. The shift of ecclesiastical authority now began away from Edessa, which in 216 became a tributary of Rome. The establishment of an independent patriarchate contributed to a more favorable attitude by the Persians, who no longer had to fear an alliance with the hated Romans. To the west of Persia was the ancient kingdom of Armenia, which had been a political football between the Persians and the Romans for generations. Both the Persians and Romans used Armenia as a place to try out new diplomatic maneuvers with each other. The poor Armenians just wanted to be left alone, but that was not to be, given their location between the two empires. Armenia has the historical distinction of being the first state to embrace Christianity as a national religion, even before the conversion of Constantine the Great in the early 4th century. The one who brought the gospel to Armenia was a member of the royal family named Gregory, called the Illuminator. While still a boy, Gregory's family was exiled from Armenia to Cappadocia when his father was thought to have been part of a plot to assassinate the Armenian king. As a grown man who had become a Christian, Gregory returned to Armenia, where he shared the faith with King Tiridates, who ruled at the dawn of the 4th century. Tiridates was converted, and Gregory's son succeeded him as bishop of the new Armenian church. This son attended the Council of Nicaea in 325. Armenian Christianity has remained a distinctive and important brand of the faith, with five million still professing allegiance to the Armenian church. Though persecution came to an official end in the Roman Empire with the Constantine's Edict of Toleration in 313, it began for the church in Persia in 340. The primary cause for persecution was political. When Rome became Christian, its old enemy turned anti-Christian. Up to that point, the situation had been reversed. For the first 300 years, it was in the West that Christians were persecuted and Persia was their refuge. The Parthians were religiously tolerant, while their less tolerant Sassanid successors were too busy fighting Rome to waste time or effort on the Christians among them. But in 315, a letter from Constantine to his Persian counterpart, Shapur II, triggered the beginnings of an ominous change in the Persian attitude towards Christians. Constantine believed that he was writing to help his fellow believers in Persia, but succeeded only in exposing them. He wrote to the young Persian ruler, quote, I rejoice to hear that the fairest provinces of Persia are adorned with Christians. Since you are so powerful and pious, I commend them to your care and leave them in your protection." Unquote. The schemes and intrigues that had flowed for generations between Rome and the Persians were so intense that this letter moved Shapur to become suspicious of the Christians as a kind of fifth column, working from inside the empire to bring the Sassanids down. Any doubts were dispelled 20 years later when Constantine gathered his forces in the east for war. Eusebius tells us that Roman bishops accompanied the Roman army into battle. To make matters worse, in Persia, one of their own preachers predicted that Rome would defeat the Sassanids. Little wonder then when persecution began shortly after. The first accusation brought against Christians was that they were aiding the enemy. Shapur ordered a double taxation on Christians and held their bishop responsible for collecting it. 
Shapur knew that Christians tended to be poor, since so many of them had come from the West fleeing persecution. So the bishop would be hard-pressed to come up with the money. But Bishop Simon refused to be intimidated. He declared the tax unjust and said, I am no tax collector, I am a shepherd of the Lord's flock. Shapur counter-declared that the church was thus in rebellion, and the killings began. A second decree ordered the destruction of churches and the execution of clergy who refused to participate in the official Sassanid-sponsored sun worship. Bishop Simon was seized and brought before Shapur. Offered a huge bribe to capitulate, he refused. The Persians promised that if he alone would renounce Christ, the rest of the Christian community wouldn't be harmed. But if he refused, he would be condemning all Christians to destruction. When the Christians heard of this, they rose up, protesting en masse that this was shameful. So Bishop Simon and a large number of the clergy were executed. For the next 20 years, Christians were hunted down from one end of Persia to the other. At times, it was a general massacre, but more often, it was an organized elimination of the church's leaders. Another form of suppression was the search for that part of the Christian community that was most vulnerable to persecution, and that was Persians who'd converted from the native religion of Zoroastrianism. The faith spread first among non-Persians in the population, especially among the Jews and the Syrians. But by the beginning of the fourth century, Persians in increasing numbers were attracted to the Christian faith. For such converts, church membership often meant the loss of everything, their family, property rights, and yes, even their lives. The martyrdom of Bishop Simon and the years of persecution that followed gutted the Persian church of its leadership and organization. As soon as the Christians of Tessaphon elected a new bishop, he would be seized and killed. Adding to the anti-Roman motivation of the government's role in the persecution was a deep undercurrent of Zoroastrian fanaticism that came as a result of the conversion of so many of their numbers to Christianity. It was a shocking example of religious envy. Shortly before Shapur's death in 379, the persecution slackened. It had lasted for 40 years and it only ended with his death. When at last the suffering ceased, it's estimated that close to 200,000 Persian Christians had been put to death. Thanks for joining us at Communio Sanctorum. We really appreciate your listening and subscribing. Listeners are invited to like the Communio Sanctorum Facebook page and to write a review in the iTunes store. For both Facebook and iTunes, search for History of the Christian Church. Looking forward to joining you next time.